Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Back to the Bins. This time around, we're going to be looking at Superman, Volume 1, Annual, Number 11. I am Scott Gardner. I'm joined by Michael Bailey, who, uh, well, I'll, I'll let Mike reveal. Uh, Mike, you need to talk about uh, the, the date that this, uh, this issue is set within the story itself. <laughs> yes. It is set on February 29th, which is traditionally considered Superman's birthday. It is also my birthday. So <laughs> I, I feel a very special kinship to this story and to Superman for that matter because of that. And we've said the word special enough times that I think it's time to introduce our guest for this episode, <laughs> a man who is indeed quite special himself. Hello! <laughs> Ah. Oh, I have. Hang on. I am so glad we're not in the same room right now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just doing my impression. We all know who that really is. (laughs) Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell. Welcome, welcome. A man of dignity. And oh, you, you found it somewhere? <laughs> I was yeah, about to say, it no, was you in don't... the bottom of the sock drawer. It was, <laughs> yeah, and it was filthy too. <laughs> I noticed you didn't say self-respect. No, because <laughs> you can have dignity without self-respect. Oh, I, oh, I, oh, I know. Proof of this. <laughs> now, th- this isn't your first back to the bins, is it? No, it seems no, like we've done, been on yeah. a bunch of them. Seems like I've been on a bunch of them with you and Bailey. I think I've been on ones before Bailey was involved. I think maybe I might have done one that you slapped a beginning and end on at one point. I don't know. I don't know. You covered that really uh, weird comic. Uh, Oh, you're right. Yeah. That that sounded really cool by the way you described it. And you were on my first official first episode as regular co-host. With Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. So. That was oh, your right. first episode. Yeah. Oh wow. That was a humdinger too. I yeah, right. What a to do more of those. Come in at a yes. bang. Well, Jeez. we've got you know Incredible Hulk and Batman. We've got Sp- Superman and Wonder Woman. When are we gonna get off our asses and do those? Because uh, I keep thinking about those. Because I keep thinking about not Is only that a rhetorical uh, question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I keep thinking about not only the Batman Hulk one, but I, I'm constantly thinking about um, the Superman, Superman Muhammad Ali and Superman uh, Shazam because that one that one kicks ass too. Rich well, Buckler, give me some uh, give me some lead time on the Muhammad Ali because 
the comic shop I go to, Dave's in Fayetteville, has the hardcover. Oh, of wow. The recent, of the recent printing. And I've never read it, so uh, that would be an excuse for me to go out and buy it. I think you'll like it. I think you'll like it a lot. If, if nothing else, the, uh, the Neil Adams art is gorgeous. gorgeous yeah. In it. yeah. Plus, uh, I, th- I feel like the essence of Muhammad Ali was perfectly captured in that book because he comes off as a great a asshole so it was actually pretty cool and he does beat the stuffing out of superman too which is you know as much as i like the guy you know it's there's something about seeing superman get his ass whooped from time to time that's i don't know just kind of does it for me somehow <laughs> i don't know what it is well you know i i, I like the the hero triumph it, story so he has to kind of get his he's ass got a, yeah triumph you know yeah, otherwise, yeah, there would be no drama involved in it. So, yeah, every once in a while, Muhammad Ali's got to come out of retirement. And... Well, and and the rematch was one page long back <laughs> when they were on Earth. And, <laughs> you know, Muhammad Ali took a swing at him, and Superman, you know, like, threw him into the sun. <laughs> I love that issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Superman getting his ass kicked, he gets oh, both yes. the physical and emotional beat down in this issue. So, uh, yeah, happy synops- birthday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're uh, synopsizing this one, right? Yes, I am. And I All am right. using tonight. I have this reprinted. I have the original issue uh, that I picked up for like a dollar six or seven years ago. Wow. Yeah, I was really happy to get it, too. The first time I read this was in The Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told. Which is what I took to work today to uh, to reread it, by the way. Uh, and it was really cool to see that finally when I bought that when I was like 12 because they had that Time Magazine article about the 50th anniversary of Superman and they have a panel from this issue in that and I always wanted to see what comic that panel came from. Hmm. But I also picked up that British reprint, the black and white uh, trade that has all of Alan Moore's story and for 10 bucks off of eBay I got the oversized deluxe edition of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow which also includes the dc comics present story with swamp thing and for the man who has everything wow so i was just looking at that dc comics presents with swamp thing we need to do that yes it was awesome i was looking i was looking for my physical issue of this which i couldn't find and i saw that one and i saw the um I saw my Superman number 500 and, you know, all these other great Superman comics and I couldn't find the one I was looking for. Dagnabbit. Well, you know, you you mentioned having found this for a buck. I'm wondering, has this issue not maintained its uh, its value? Because I know that it used to really be pricey. Mm-hmm. Really? Because it was one of the three Alan Moore Superman stories. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh... You know, and it, I don't know what the print run on it was like because this was right around the time that Alan Moore was just getting popular as a writer in the United States with the mainstream audience because he had been popular before because of um, what was that book called? Mir- uh, Miracle Man. Right. And then he took over Swamp Thing, and that was kind of a sleeper hit for a long time, too. Right. Um, so I think, I think, you know, when his, but when his star rating went up, so did the uh, back issue price of this. Mm, right. But I was happy to find it for what I did. 
See, I always had the impression that that this particular book did have kind of a low print run because, for one thing, it was an annual. But also, traditionally speaking, Superman annuals kind of sucked ass. Yeah, you know. So this one was 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 a real fluke for it to be not only Alan Moore and and Dave Gibbons, you know, the guys behind Watchmen, but it it's a great book, you know. And so I, I just, you know, by watching, you know, when I used to keep up with uh, comic values, you know, I used to really keep an eye on this one. It seems like it was always expensive, so that's odd if it's suddenly down, you know, to where it, you can find it in a dollar down, bin. Yeah, that's everything's true. down though. That's the thing. It's like I was telling you mm-hmm. off air. I found a bunch of Wolfman Perez uh, uh, era issues, including New Teen- Tales of the New Teen Titans Annual number three, which is the last part of the Judas contract, right. in a quarter bin, basically. Damn. So, you know, the back issue market between people losing interest, the economy, trade paperbacks, and now digital books, I think back issues are going to start plummeting. I think about 15 to 20 years from now, they're going to skyrocket. Yes, they're going to go crazy. Yes, I agree. Which is why I'm buying stuff now. Right. Retirement. (laughs) Well, no, but but it'd be nice if you know I had some books that are like, hey, this shit's expensive now. So right, but so. Anyways, this is Superman Volume One Annual Number Eleven, as Scott mentioned. It has a cover price of one dollar and twenty-five cents. This is from the Good Lord, over twenty-five years ago, date of nineteen eighty-five on the cover. Mm-hmm by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons and on that cover we have Batman the Jason Todd Robin before he became a prick and Wonder Woman looking on in horror as Mongol towers over Superman who's got this weird looking plant hooked to his chest and folks strap in because this is a true back to the bin style synopsis nothing is written down dun, dun, dun. that was dramatic <laughs> as hell <laughs> Thank you. you guys are fucking dramatic on this show. <laughs> I'm liking this. Prologue. West of the city. Red evening light refracts through giant messes of diamond. The sky ripples at the horizon. Pastel veils billowing in the wind. Walking home weary, the spectacle is lost upon him. And right away, you know, folks, we're in an Alan Moore written story. <laughs> so we see Kal-El walking home on Krypton thinking about the fact that he is going to read his children another Scarlet Jungle story before bed, leaving the night for him and his wife, Lila. But when he opens the door, there is his family and friends, and they're all wishing him a happy first day. Van tugs at his tunic, and Kara Zor-El gives him a new headband on the Holofactor. Nightwing saves Flamebird from a rogue metal eater. His weariness lifts. The man has his family about him. He is content. The Arctic Circle, February 29th. Wonder Woman has beaten Batman and Robin to the Fortress of Solitude. And if you were having a dirty thought about Wonder Woman beating Batman and Robin, well, shame on you. (laughs) So they talk about what they got Superman for his birthday since February 29th. is his birthday. And she says, we got to get in here. Because you guys must be freezing. This was also the first time Jason Todd met Wonder Woman. And his comment is, Before us two freeze, dressed like that? And Batman's thought, One of the best lines of the entire book, Think clean thoughts, chum. 
<laughs> so they walk into the Fortress of Solitude. They're looking around with uh, four Superman. Wonder Woman has a replica of the Bottle City of Candor under her arm, but we don't know that yet because it hasn't been unwrapped. Batman had paid a horticulturist to breed a new strain of rose called the Krypton because he's pretty certain no one else will send him flowers. Well, guess what? Somebody did because they find Superman standing, staring off into nothingness with an odd-looking plant strapped to his chest. They immediately start investigating, and Batman pretty much deduces that whatever this thing is, it's growing into him. His pupils aren't contracting even slightly, and he is cut off from just about all sensation. He is in a world of his own, and that world of his own is Krypton as if it never exploded. Kal-El and his wife Lila who we're going to have an interesting discussion on, I'm sure, <laughs> once we get into our notes. Have a discussion about Jor-El, because he's being unreasonable. Uh, Lila says, I know he argued with his brother, but Zor-El's been dead for three years now, because Jor-El did not come to the party. Finally, Clark... Well, Clark... <laughs> Cal asks her, Lila, why did you ever give up acting for this? And she goes, I don't know, Cal. Remind me. And they have dirty, dirty monkey sex. For like Kryptonian pages. monkey sex. Oh my god. I did not know a human body could bend like... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nothing like that happens at all. The next day, Cal goes to see his father, Jor-El, who is meeting with Major Daxar and his reverence, Lore-M, which is kind of off-putting to Cal-El. Jor-El does apologize for missing his first day, but something important came up. And he goes, you know how things are. Cal is a little upset because Lore-M is the one who runs the Sword of Rao sect. And he's wondering what his father is doing with people like that. Jor-El basically says, shut up, I'll do what I damn well feel like. If the old Krypton movement is to have any political strength in the chambers, uh, a lot of people need to have influence behind it. So they argue about this and go back and forth. And we find out that basically Jor-El told everybody that the planet was going to explode. It didn't, and it kind of ruined him as a person. We also find out that Laura basically, it is called the eating sickness. And I'm not sure if something ate away at her or if it's a sickness where people actually eat until they die. Either way... Jor-El's I'm guessing more like cancer, yeah. Uh, either way, Jor-El's not a happy camper, and he and his son don't get along, which causes him to break one of the glass trees in his menagerie with his cane. So we cut back to reality, where Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman are still kind of talking about how this uh, plant could have possibly gotten into the Fortress of Solitude, Batman theorizes that Superman must have kept a teleportation channel open all day for people all around the galaxy to send him gifts. They're wondering uh, uh, if maybe some grateful world sent the gift unaware that it could cause harm. And that is when we are introduced, at least in the story, to the villain of the piece, Mongol. He says, how remarkable you animals really are. Almost intelligent, aren't you? That's exactly what happened except for one or two minor details. First, I knew precisely what it would do to him. Secondly, it was not intended as a token of gratitude. And he basically explains that this thing is called a Black Mercy. 
He traveled a great way into the Tangled Zones to locate it. And he also adds that Robin needs to stop moving behind him because it distracts him. <laughs> and basically, it's something between a plant and an intelligent fungus. It attaches itself to the victims in a form of a symbiosis, feeding off their bio-aura. And what does it do for them in return? Why, it gives them their heart's desire. I'd say that was fair, wouldn't you? It's telepathic. It reads them like a book. And it feeds them a logical simulation on the happy ending they desire. Of course, its victims could shrug it off. They just don't want to. So, he's basically saying he delivered it through the teleportation channel. And he's talking about maybe he's happily playing as a child. And I love this line. And whatever sordid aboriginal backwater he was raised in or <laughs> bouncing on his mother's knee forever. And Batman asks, what are you? And he says, well, if you don't already know my name, you ain't shit. I'm the new manager around here, so let me just ask you this. I don't know about your planet. I don't know how it works here. I don't know how you do on gender or age. So can one of you tell me which one of you would be polite to kill first? So Wonder Woman looks at Batman. Batman looks at Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman walks up to Mongol and punches him dead in the face, which apparently hurts like hell. And Mongol says, thank you. I think that's answered my question. So, back into Cal's dream world, and it's kind of slowly turning into a nightmare because apparently Kara was attacked earlier that evening by some rioters uh, armed with slash sticks, and she's in critical condition. They found a... I don't know what you would call that. Pamphlet tied around her neck? Flyer, yeah. A flyer tied around her neck. And it's a picture of Jack Soar. Free the Phantom Zone exiles now. Cal goes in to look on his cousin, and she's all banged up and bruised. Outside, his son is playing with one of the nurses. They are playing Nightwing and Flamebird, which I thought was freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. He checks in with Lila and tells her what's going down and says that... Uh, Kara's mother will be staying at the hospital with Kara and they'll be safe here. And he wants her and Orna to take the Paragondola straight to Atomic Town. Van and he and Cal have the floater, so they will meet them there because bad shit's happening on Krypton. In fact, they kind of run into this on their way to Atomic Town by seeing a big, huge um, parade of the old Krypton movement. And that cuts us back to the real world where Mongol is busy beating the living shit out of Wonder Woman. She gets into the armory, picks up a... What does he call that? A neural impactor. Which to me sounds like a neural neutralizer. Or, as we all like to say... Neural... No. Neutralizer. No. Though Mongol advises a plas plasm disruptor because it's smaller and more of a female's weapon. <laughs> so, Batman's trying to figure out what's going on with the Black Mercy as Mongol continues to beat the hell out of Wonder Woman. Back in the dream world, Jor-El is busy delivering a fiery speech on how they need to free the people in the Phantom Zone and do all kinds of things to go back to old Krypton. And a riot breaks out, so Clark, Cal, I keep wanting to call him Clark, goddammit. Cal jumps back into his floater, and he and his son drive out to where Kandor used to be, 
And this is where Cal realizes that something's not right. It's kind of a shaky feeling he's had. And he looks at his son as they sit there in this giant open pit. And he it basically sums up with one sentence to his son. He goes, Van, I don't think you're real. So, back in the real world, Batman finally manages to get the Black Mercy off as Superman's dream world fades away. The Black Mercy jumps back onto Batman, and suddenly Batman is in a dream world of his own where Thomas Wayne takes the gun from Joe Chill's hands, and he doesn't do it here in the animated series. He just beats the crap out of Joe Chill. So Robin doesn't know what the hell to do. Batman's on the ground unconscious, living his own little fantasy world, and that's when Robin notices that Superman is awake. Superman said, who did this to me? Robin's like, I don't know, big yellow guy? He's in there. He's hurting Wonder Woman. Superman, are you okay? You look sort of Mongol. And then he screams Mongol and shatters Robin's eardrums <laughs> in the process. And this, folks, begins one of the most epic fucking Superman fights ever. He flies into Mongol as fast as he could, breaking through every wall in the Fortress of Solitude. Meanwhile, Robin has managed to get the Black Mercy off of Batman and runs away with it. Mongol grabs Superman at one point and is about to snap his neck and he goes, I give you oblivion. Superman simply says, burn, and burns the shit out of Mongol's chest with his heat vision. Robin manages to get the Black Mercy inside the glove that you hold it with, and then he puts the glove in his cape and starts going towards where Superman is fighting. Mongol and Superman are trading blows. Mongol's pissed because Superman actually hurt him, and Mongol says, you should have stayed in whatever happy fantasy the Black Mercy granted you. Superman goes, happy? Happy? And the fight's on again because Superman was anything but happy at having his uh, fantasy world ripped away from him. And they fight throughout the Fortress of Solitude, and they finally get to the room where Jor the statues of Jor-El and Laura are, and that is what distracts Superman, which was kind of a bad thing, because Mongo uses this to take the advantage. And he's basically about to kill Superman by, I guess, punching him into the face to death, when Robin goes, uh, excuse me, but I think this thing is yours. Almost intelligent, huh? And he drops the Black Mercy onto Mongol. But Mongol swats it away and burns Robin alive. He snaps off Superman's head and puts it on a pike because he's about to take over the entire universe. But that's what's inside Mongol's head. What actually happens is the Black Mercy takes root. And Superman says, it's over. So we get the wrap-up where Batman's explaining that... Uh, his fantasy world was he was married to Kathy Kane and they had a teenage daughter. Which I think it would have been better if he was married to Selena Kyle and had mm -hmm. a teenage daughter. Wonder Woman gives Superman her gift, which is, as I said, a glass replica, exact duplicate of the bottle city of Candor. The Paradise Island gemsmiths made it. You really need x-ray and microscopic vision to really appreciate it. Superman flies at super speed back into one of his rooms where he already has a replica of the bottle <laughs> city of Gandor, hides it in a closet, and then flies back and takes Wonder Woman's present. Wonder Woman kisses him, and Superman goes, why don't we do that more often? I don't know, too predictable? You're probably right. That's not the conversation I wanted them to have. 
<laughs> Batman gives him his gift, which is the rose named the Krypton. And he goes, well, I'm afraid it got stepped on. And, well, frankly, it's dead. Don't worry about it, Bruce. Perhaps it's for the best. Come on, does somebody want to make coffee while I clean this place up? And then we have our epilogue. Like an insatiable virus, he sweeps out across the universe. And his enemies are as dust beneath his feet. Suns shudder at his coming. The great powers of the cosmos kneel before him and kiss his fingertips. Vast and implacable, a resurrected war world wheels through the bottomless night, reducing galaxy after galaxy to smoke and ruin. The stars run red. The nebulae echo with screams of the dying. He is content. And that's the end. Wow. All that off the top of your head. That was was pretty damn good. I appreciate that. (laughs) I was a little fuzzy on some of the details, but... uh... You say some pretty words, Michael. (laughs) That's a little too close to you got a real pretty mouth, boy. So please never say that to me again. (laughs) You use your mouth prettier than a $20 whore. (laughs) Wow. Who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. I don't. I don't care. Um, I've got just kind of like random notes for this thing. First of all, um, this is easily, easily one of my favorite Superman stories of all time. It's just epic, and I think what I liked the best about it was that um, this really evidences. Alan Moore's love for the character and knowledge of Superman's backstory. He brings together a lot of elements of Superman mythos in one story. And I really like that. I, I, I also really enjoy that as the battle takes place throughout the issue, we get a basically a tour of the Fortress of Solitude, which I'm always down for. And again, that tour, as they battle their way through it, is very faithful to you know the myth of superman as it existed at that time and that version of superman you know what his fortress looked like and and what all was in his fortress and i really like that i i enjoy that a lot um a couple couple specific notes here i really liked uh on page six um that's the page where uh lila was saying to him you know or he he asked Cal asked Lila why she gave up being an actress, um, you know, for this life, and she says, "I don't know." Cal, remind me that shot where she's saying that. It really reminds me a lot of uh, Legion headquarters from like around, well, actually, right around this era here, where it would have been the uh, the Giffen era on Legion. Um, just to show how different an era this was, both for Superman. Um, Batman and Wonder Woman. I like Batman admitting that there's something that's out of his league. This is something I don't think you would see modern Batman doing at all. I I can't recall the last time that Batman uh, would, you know, admitted it or even said, you know, Hey, you know, we, we can't, we can't deal with this. You know, this is bigger than us. Um, but I like that at this time, you know, Batman wasn't this unbeatable godlike being who had everything planned out, you know, four steps ahead of everybody and could take down any creature. You know, in this one, 
he clearly is outmatched, and he damn well knows it, and he's not afraid to admit it. I like that a lot. I thought that was one of the key Batman moments in this issue. Um, and I like the desperation that, you know, the story feels desperate. It feels like there's a, a real sense of peril in this that, that Mongol, you know, if, if they can't find a way to revive Superman, Mongol's going to kill them. And it feels that way in the story. There's a genuine sense of, of threat that this guy's, you know, he's, he's nothing to screw around with. And Wonder Woman puts up a valiant fight, but she's not going to hold out forever. And I just like the pacing of the story in that element. Um, I like the mention of the vault, uh, the gold volcano, because uh-huh. that was, uh, you know, there, like I say, there's lots of little like Easter eggs for bits and pieces of the Superman uh, mythos through this whole thing. I got a real kick out of that. Um, what else? On page 23, panel one, that is um, Neil Adams' Batman right there. I mean, it's gorgeous and it looks just like his you know there was there were a couple different panels with batman in this where i kind of felt like maybe gibbons was uh was paying homage to other artists but i couldn't quite nail it in a lot of the other panels but this one right here is is pretty dead on neil adams yeah you're right and at the bottom of that page is pretty neil adams too Mm -hmm. very much so um what else have I got? Going back a little bit, because like my, my notes are in a little bit random order here. Page 7, panel 4. That dude that kind of looks like, uh, you know, classic, uh, you know, Silver Age General Zod. By the way he's colored in this, he actually looks a lot like Colonel Future, too, which I got a <laughs> kick out of when I saw him. Um, Edmund I, Hamilton. I like on uh, Edmund... Oh, is that his name? Yeah, because he's named after the writer. Ah, okay. I didn't realize that. Page uh, page twelve. I really like where Batman asks Mongol, "What are you?" And Mongol like crouches down to to talk to to Batman on his own level. But it's also the way you would like crouch down to to speak to a child. And I like that. It's he's. With you know, with subtle body language, it's like he's uh, condescending to Batman, and I like that a lot. It's, it's oh, just and that, really that grin great. he's got is yeah. pretty uh, condescending for sure. It's great. That's a really great panel. The artwork in this is beautiful, and it's it's so odd because I've never been the biggest Dave Givens fan, but you know, there's no denying that his layout skills are phenomenal. You know, he really does a good job telling the story, you know, with body language and things like that. I, I'm still just not real crazy about, like, his his faces or his bodies. Because I, I think that through a lot of the story, Wonder Woman and, and Robin in particular look kind of, they look kind of bloated or something. Um, like pudgy or something. But I, I do like his Superman. And uh, his Batman's great in this. But it, it's really more about how he lays out the panels more than, it, you know, the actual art style itself that, is really phenomenal. Um, I like the old Krypton march scene there, the the old Krypton rally because it looks like a cross between um, the Spanish Inquisition and like a clan rally or something, yeah. and and like yes. the Imperial Guards from yes. from Star Wars too. Yeah, yeah all of them <laughs> sort of mixed together. 
that's very Dave Gibbons, Alan Moresh, you know, it having that. Been, I don't know how much of a fan of the radio show Alan Moore was, but if they would have called them the Clan of the Fiery Cross, that would have been freaking awesome. <laughs> because that was the KKK stand-in on the Superman radio show when that show took uh-huh. on the Clan. Oh, yeah. Which, doing that in 1945, 1946, that was a big freaking deal. Well, not only that, but they didn't just sort of lampoon the clan. They pretty much knocked them out of, uh, not out of existence, but out of mainstream existence. They pretty much did it. It, yeah. was, it was quite an amazing feat. Last thing I've got for this one is... Uh... The thing that makes me love this story and the thing that uh, I, I felt was was missing the most from the adaptation of it, which we'll talk about in a little while, was, was pages 25 and 26, where Robin is, uh, you know, this is the Jason Todd Robin, and, and he's still very new to the game at this point. And I just like this moment where the Black Mercy has attached itself to Batman and Jason's basically flipping out saying, you know, I, I can't handle this. And he's begging Bruce to wake up. And he's, you know, he says that, you know, I don't know if a human body can stand contact with this junk, uh, even if it didn't do any harm to, and he stops and he remembers who's standing behind him. And he says, Superman. And we get a great perspective shot looking up from Robin's perspective at Superman and Superman just looks damn scary. You know, he's, you know, he's massive in this panel. I love the way it's colored all red and you can feel the, the rage and the anger coming off Superman. And, you know, enraged Superman is just a frightening concept. Yeah. And I think that the art perfectly captures that in this, in this two page sequence where Superman just says, who did this to me and i love that and when he just completely loses it when he realizes it's mongol and you're right you know when he screams mongol we've got this great shot of like the sound waves knocking robin over at the same time that he's grasping his ears and you can just imagine that you know it it really would have worked well if they had shown like blood trickling out of Robin's ears after this because it would be totally oh, believable, you know that yeah. that he did, you know. Yeah, if something's that loud that you sort of have to fall over sideways like that, clutching your ears. Yeah, it's got to be pretty damn painfully loud. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I I really like that that two pages. Though you know those. Uh, Essentially, those five panels, that's what makes this book for me because you realize, you know, <laughs> Superman, you know, Superman's not somebody to, to do this sort of thing to, to trifle with like this. You know, he's a he's a, a being of godlike power who is always restraining and, and holding himself. Right. Back. But in this particular instance, he's been enraged to a point where, you know, he's fully prepared to. It's an Alan Moore story, so yeah. you're thinking he might beat someone to death. He yeah. might, he, you know, he he potentially could. To to paraphrase a good friend of mine named George, if you've pissed off Superman, it's kind of like being mauled by Jesus. <laughs> you know, if the Prince of Peace has had enough of your shit, 
then you've done something really bad. This is my favorite moment of the entire story. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you, you read that line of dialogue. Who did this to me? Right. And he goes, what was this big yellow guy? And, he, and it's like Superman's considering it, Mongol. And then it, you're right. You know, the red-eyed, scary Superman has become such a cliche over the past, like, 10 to 12 years mm-hmm. that it, it it's kind of easy to forget that in this era, Superman didn't get mad. Right. You know, he'd fight you. You know, he'd, he'd duke it out with like the Galactic Gollum or Metallo, but it's not like he was ever pissed. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when dad has been pushed a little too far and everyone starts running. Right, that's, that's kind of like what it is here, and you're yeah. absolutely right. It's rarely are. this personal. Yeah, don't make me turn this earth around. <laughs> yeah, don't I make me pull it over. <laughs> I will throw you all into the sun. I swear before Almighty. <laughs> um, I will spin this world around so fast you won't know who the <laughs> hell you are, young man. No, but I totally agree with that, Scott. It's just like the best moment of the book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Chris, what do you got? Yes. Speak, well, boy, speak. <laughs> you guys you guys said a lot of stuff that I would have said, but just real pretty. Um, <laughs> I feel sorry for Superman Zoo. Jesus Christ, man. They're always in this dark room in like these little tiny cages just facing forward. It doesn't even look like they have room to turn around. And you know, and all all the time, all these godlike beings fight through their home, which is probably just like you know. I'm looking at that poor owl-looking thing just sitting there, going, "Jesus Christ, I've got to sit in my little cage." And then all of a sudden, Superman comes through here, fighting through here, and you know, I'm sure there's just like robots who clean up their shit and stuff. But, geez, Superman, you'd think he'd make him some sort of habitat or something. Um. <laughs> I feel really bad that Jor-El turned into Andy Rooney in, in this one. Did you ever notice that the Phantom <laughs> Zone is bad? <laughs> Did you ever notice that sometimes your planet doesn't blow up when it's supposed to? <laughs> that, that really gets my goat. But... You know, my one of my big notes is I yeah, you always love to see Superman get pissed. And um I remember when I, I, I think I got this I don't think I knew this was coming out, but you were getting you were just like, dude, the new um you know, the new uh, annual is is Alan Moore, so you basically got me to go out and buy it. And I remember when this came out the part where uh you know, Superman just gets a, even another level of pissed at Mongol and then burns him with this heat vision. Mm-hmm. I remember that being the part that you were just like, yes, you got to see the part where Superman just looks at him and says, burn, which is was like Michael said, that's really dramatic for this time period of Superman, you mm-hmm. know, you and. And when you're watching him burn him across the chest like that, you're thinking, well, <laughs> that could be the end of Mongol right there. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's sort of right across the heart area. Just and, 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 and now that I notice it, now that I look at it, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of uh, 
um, ghetto speak for shit there. It says shizit. Yeah, I was, uh, noticing that too. <laughs> it literally says shizit <laughs> as he as he fries him, and uh, and I love the the total Alan Moore psychological aspect of this. It, which is funny because remember what was it? it was a was it a Swamp Thing annual or was it just an an like issue number fifty or something? But there was one of the Alan Moore stories where there was stuff going on in hell and Swamp Thing had to go yeah, into hell. I think it's annual two, if I remember right. So there were all these stories of you know people in altered consciousness, weirdness, and stuff, and this was sort of going along with that and. And the other Alan Moore Superman Swamp Thing story with the... Didn't that have some sort of like meteor with a mold on it? that Yeah, was it was from the Scarlet Jungle, which is actually referenced in this, yeah. In this. So, so you know, it, it, it's got that Alan Moore aspect of like in into Superman's psychology. And I love how, you know, he as he's in his his dream state that it can't run it can't run perfectly all around the edges it's crumbling there's stuff going wrong and not quite right you know he's not living in this utopia you know dream world and i think that's just because it's sort of the kirk with his ship thing you know kirk being married to his ship there's some part of superman that still knows his friends are out there fighting for their lives and he's even picking up on little bits of the conversation and it's working into his dream conversation too. So he's sort of like a person in a coma or something. Right. So all, I, I just love that. I love how, you know, reality is sort of chipping away at his his fake reality enough to get him to figure out, you know, that he doesn't really have a son and get sufficiently pissed to to finish off the story. And I love the beginning. I love that, that Alan Moore also, you know, presents at the very beginning, you know, all the characters as, and this is a classic sort of Superman thing where, you know, Superman and Batman are best friends and, and all this, but, you know, Alan Moore once again, sort of puts his more, you know, modern realistic spin on it. But, you, you know, at the beginning you get a, you get that real feeling of a bunch of people, you know, like one. You know, you don't think you know Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin aren't like really close friends, but they've got Superman in common, and they're meeting up. And you know, it's just, it's just got a really neat Alan Moore feel to it. And yeah, I've read this. I can't tell you how many times I've read this comic. This is one of those ones that I've just all the all those Alan Moore Superman ones, except for. Um, the the one we did what what was it whatever happened to the man of tomorrow right and uh, I don't that's the only one I don't have but that I I really enjoyed that one too and uh, yeah this is this goes you know right I haven't read enough Superman to to say well this is one of the best Superman stories of all time but uh, you know I could say it's definitely one of the best Superman stories that I've ever read you know when. When I think of Superman stories, it's all those Alan Moore ones are in my top um, stories. So I don't know. Is it the um, City on the Edge of Forever of of uh, Superman? It sort of has a lot of similar 
elements actually it's kind of up there yeah it's, yeah it's definitely up there i i would say i would say more than for me personally more than for the uh f- um whatever happened to the man of tomorrow this is a much better superman story it, it, it's really i think we've talked we talked about this during the uh for whatever happened to discussion that we had but it it, it I'm always uncomfortable saying that this is one of the best Superman stories ever because it's kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Unfair might be the right word that a guy that comes in and writes three stories and doesn't have a consistent run with the character where he fully explores, you know, the character and his, and the world that the character lives in supporting cast, the city and all that. As be, as as telling one of the greatest Superman stories ever told, because it's like, well, you haven't put enough time in with the character, and yet, I can <laughs> I can say that this is one of the best Superman stories ever told. It is just missing one key element, and that's Clark Kent. There's no room for him. I realize that, but that's why it. Uh, kind of drops down a little for me not like you know down into the bottom of the pits because it's definitely in the top 10 but and you kind of explore clark kent because you see kal-el wearing glasses throughout his entire time on krypton right which was kind of cool which is why i kept calling him clark um but still, you know, for me, you know, a, a, a quintessential Superman story and a classic Superman story should have something to do with the Daily Planet staff. And you don't see that here. That being said, that's pretty much my only negative comment about this entire story. Quintessential doesn't have to be best, you know. That's, well, that's true, yeah. but... Also, I would say that, you know, I, I see what you say about it couldn't it could almost be a little galling that you know the the guy that that breezes in and does you know three stories and and those three stories are are upheld as some of the finest work you know ever done on the character while you know there were you know he didn't you know quote unquote earn his bones you know like other people but on the flip side i would say you know there are other people that did this character for years and years and years yet they don't have a story that you can pull out and go this is one of the greatest Superman stories. They just were kind of, you know, churning material out. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and I'm no, not going to name any one particular character, you know, creator or run or anything, you know, because I, I don't want to, you know, single anybody out. But, you know, I think we've, we've seen that over the course of Superman's publishing life that, yeah, I mean, there, there were entire eras where there wasn't anything, you know, that, that was, could could hold a candle to this you know what i mean so mm-hmm. I, I guess what i'm saying is on the flip side that yeah it might be galling especially to some of those creators to go wait wait a minute this guy that you know walks in and does a story his his is the greatest and, and mine isn't well it's like what did you do during that time you know what what did you produce that that could be held up you know that sort of thing so no i agree with your point uh as well as my own i i can see both sides of that so, uh, did you have anything else, Chris, or was that it for your? Notes? No, that was pretty much it on you know my my comics, um, you know my comic notes on on it. I didn't really take any notes on either of them, but I did watch the cartoon Fresh today. 
Uh, I'll just breeze through mine really quick. Um, this was something that was brought up on Scott's I've Got a Few Things to Say About Superman through an email from Steve J. Rogers. Lila is a character from a very classic uh, Superman story from the Silver Age called The Return to Krypton. Right. Where Superman goes back to Krypton, meets his parents, uh, runs into Doc Brown, realizes <laughs> he has to save whatever they call a clock tower on Krypton, uh, 88 miles an hour, insert other Back to the Future jokes here. Um, Lila was his great romance during this story. And she was an actress that he runs into on the set who, unlike any other actress ever, falls in love with one of the extras. <laughs> Gotta love science fiction. But she was a contemporary of Jor-El and Laura. So, as Steve J. Rogers pointed out in his email, Lila would be like a um, almost Milf a or gilf. Something? No, she would right. be a gilf at this point. Not a well, milf. It's his a fantasy world. It's his fantasy well, world. Exactly. No, I, I agree with that concept because it's not like it's not like an actual history of Krypton not blowing up. It's the fantasy world made by an amalgamation of Superman's heart's uh, greatest desire. So it's an interesting thing to point out, and I felt we should point it out here. But at the same time, I love the fact that he's married to Lila and has two kids. That is just fantastic to me. It's very sad that his mother died. I have to say I felt for him on that one. I really did. I do like the fact that this takes place on February 29th, as I mentioned earlier. That's my birthday. Um, I... Robin is covering up with his cape. Uh, I think he's really trying to cover up the stiffy uh, <laughs> that he obviously got from seeing Wonder Woman. And Dave Gibbons draws like a <laughs> fu fully firm, stacked like a brick shit house Wonder Woman. This is not a skinny supermodel Wonder She's Woman. She's an this, Amazon. Yeah, yeah. This, is a, this is a full figured hang on for dear life Wonder Woman. So. Yeah, I'm all about that. Holy shit. She's got a little junk in that trunk, and that's awesome. Um, Dave Gibbons' artwork. Uh, this was the first time I ever remember seeing anything from Dave Gibbons when I read it back when I was 12. The next thing I would see is Watchmen, and because I'm now more familiar with that, every time I see Dave Gibbons' artwork, I think it's Watchmen. Uh -huh. Right? Yeah. So it was really weird, like, when I read his Green Lantern run, it's like, wow, they all look like characters in the Watchmen. So... Uh, I like his Superman a lot. He doesn't draw the cape as long as I would like to see it, but he draws it a lot longer than, say, Wayne Boring would uh, when he drew the character. And I like Wayne Boring, so don't take that as a shot against Wayne Boring. His uh, uh, Superman, to me, looks a lot like my favorite um, Superman action figure that I ever had. The you know the hair and everything he he just does he looks molded and I really like that look. Which figure was that? Um, it was a a large figure. Uh, okay, probably like a twelve to like sixteen inch tall. It was right around the time that Superman the movie was out, but it wasn't modeled to look like uh, Chris Reeve necessarily. Oh, cool. But uh, yeah, that was my favorite Superman action figure when I was a kid, and this Superman that Gibbons draws in this looks just like that. I really like Gibbons' Robin. Uh, Scott and I are constantly talking 
on <laughs> Tales of the JSA and various other shows we do about how Robin's costume is an easy one to screw up. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it is as good as a Mike Grill or a Jim Aparo or a George Perez. No. But he, he does pretty good with it. I mean, it, it looks layered, which is the important thing to me. Uh, it's, <laughs> I like the fact that we show Superman about to have sex, even though it's only implied. I really feel bad for Jor-El in this story, and I think that's... What goes to the heart of this story and what makes it such a tragedy is that even though he is in the thralls of a fantasy world, Superman still knows something is up. Mm -hmm. Because if he didn't, there would be no discord on Krypton. The whole thing with the Sword of Rao or whatever they're called, and the riots and Kara getting injured and his mother dying, those are the cracks in the facade. Yes, that's, right. That's his subconscious trying to break through and say, you idiot, you're being controlled. And I really like that. It's really kind of subtle. Most heartbreaking scene in this in this entire book is the scene where he tells his son he doesn't think he's real. That gets to me every time I read this story. Mm -hmm. Because this is everything he's ever wanted. It's a life. Superman doesn't have a life. You know? Superman lives either as Clark Kent, and sometimes he hangs out in his apartment and goes to, like, a freaking tenants meeting or whatever. But he's on, he's on go 24-7. You know, he doesn't get to have a girlfriend. He doesn't get to have a wife. He doesn't get to have children because, you know, his enemies might find out who she is and kill her and them. So here, finally, not only does he have a wife and two children and a seemingly good job, he, Krypton didn't blow up. So to, ha to have to let go of all that just breaks my heart every time it happens. And I, I agree with you, Scott. The scene with Batman talking to Mongol, and Batman being basically like, holy shit, we need Superman. There should be nothing wrong with that. There should be nothing wrong with Batman going, I can't handle this by myself. I need some backup. But you're absolutely right. Today, if Batman is ever faced with some larger threat, Mongol, Darkseid, whatever, he just gets out his bat line and he's off to the races. Mm -hmm. Superman, Batman, Apocalypse is a perfect example of that. My wife, was when we were watching that movie, was like, how is Batman fighting Darkseid? He's just a human. He has. He's one of the few that has actually no suit. He's like the Punisher or something, you know? It's... Mm -hmm. It's and there should be nothing wrong absurd, with that. Absurd, yeah. Well, I think that that's well evidenced in the uh, animated adaptation of this, too, that, that Batman does something in that, um, because I feel like that version of Batman was starting to steer closer to the modern comics interpretation rather than this era of, of Batman and Superman. Whereas in this, you know, Batman... Uh, just tries to free Superman in the animated one. He actually does attack Mongol at least one time. He, he tries to tackle him around the, the throat and Mongol just pulls him off like he was a bug or something and flings him across the room and, and injures him. And then it's, you know, it's at that point where he kind of goes back to trying to, to free Superman again. All right. Plan B. Right. Right. <laughs> but, um, the, the thing about that is, and I won't harp on this too much, is 
I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the people that write Batman, either in animation or in comics, it's almost like they have an inferiority complex about Batman. Mm-hmm. Like, Batman's not cool enough on his own. And I fully blame Grant Morrison for this. And, you know, before people start saying, oh, Mike's just bitching about Grant Morrison again. Um, <laughs> well, you or... go ahead before I start. <laughs> But during the JLA run, Batman was rose to a level of power, quote unquote, that I don't think he really needs or deserves. Batman's a great character. I am not denying that. Batman is my second favorite character tied with the Hulk. I love Batman. But I love Batman specifically because he is not Superman. But he still fights the good fight. He's good at what he does. He's a detective that can beat your ass. You know, he's a he's a fantastic acrobat. He is a gymnast. He can he's he's highly intelligent. He's a chemist. He has this great cave. He has a cool costume. And I think, especially with the animated people, Bruce Tim and all them. That they like Batman so much that when he's on the screen, he's got to be the most awesome thing ever. And I, I think that's kind of a mistake. I remember when Superman the Animated Series was about to hit. And, uh, oh, by the way, in that series, Chris, Superman had habitats for all of his zoo Yeah. Oh, thank creatures. God. So, um, but... Um, but there was an interview right before the Animated Series hit in... in uh, Wizard Magazine, where they basically said the intrinsic problem is that Batman is intrinsically cool. Sorry, the the problem is is that Batman is intrinsically cooler than Superman. Negative. And that just pissed me off because that's not that's not your promotional line for your Superman show. You know, if you're doing a Superman show, it should be like Superman is fucking awesome. Okay, and here's why. Not well. We got a bit of a handicap. Well, they're thinking cool Fonzie as... cool, not nerd cool. There's two. There's different kinds of cool. You well, know what I mean? But the point is, don't say we're doing this show, but we're handicapped because there's this greater character that we prefer doing, but we've got to do Superman. You know, it's just yeah, you know, it's just annoying. <laughs> but here we don't see that, and I and and like Scott, I really appreciated that. The fight in this is probably, of this era, the best Superman fight of the 80s, I would say. Um, the main problem with the Bronze Age, in general, and this isn't me bashing uh, this artist, but Kurt Swan did not have dramatic fight scenes. No. Jose, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez had dynamic fight scenes. Uh, Rich Buckler had dynamic fight scenes. You know, other artists besides Swan who who drew Superman could make a really good action sequence. But I don't think we had ever seen anything this brutal in a Superman comic before this time period. And I've read a lot of Superman comics, so I feel kind of comfortable saying that. Uh, It's very much like a Hulk fight or something with people getting their heads slammed into the ground and stuff. And that's what I kind of like about it and why I don't think young whippersnappers of today have a certain level of appreciation for that. Because that's all the fight scenes now. Right. It's all violent, people getting their bones broken and all that. 
you know, but just, you know, step back and think of an era where that stuff just didn't happen, didn't happen with Superman. And now, as Chris said, he's trying to kill this guy. And the only reason Mongol almost won is because Superman got distracted by the statue of his parents. And Robin had to bail him out, which is really, I think it shows what a great character Jason Todd is, too. That through sheer determination and not hearing a damn thing going on around him. I really want someone to Photoshop word balloons throughout the entirety of the end of this issue of Robin going, What? Huh? <laughs> What'd you all say? <laughs> um, I like the fact that we get to see what Batman's fantasy was. Artistically, there is something really neat and I think, Scott, you mentioned this on one of your... Uh, I've got a few things to say about Superman. Batman's bandaged over his costume on yes. page 37. And that is so old school. <laughs> that shit uh, always drives me nuts. I, I understand that it's it's a visual cue to the, to the reader that, you know, this guy's been injured and now he's being tended to, but it still just strikes me as completely ridiculous. I mean... You know, I mean, if if I if I get a cut on my arm, I don't bandage it over my shirt. You know, it's just silly. Um, last three notes, uh, page thirty nine. I really like that Gibbons took the time to magnify the S through the Bottle City model mm -hmm. that Superman is holding. That's a neat artistic effect. I like the fact that Batman looks kind of pissed when Wonder Woman kisses him. You know, Robin's kind of looking away, going, oh, "I'd rather be anywhere but here." But Batman's like, I have a goddamn plant. Look at my plant. Pay attention to me. <laughs> um, last page, I like the fact that Brainiac is bowing before Mongol. And why the fuck is the monitor there with a the sword? Is it the monitor? No, but it looks like the monitor. I'm just making a joke. Well, I like it's the, the fact... hall monitor. The hall monitor. I never really noticed it until I had this, uh, you know, I read this today in the uh, the greatest uh, Superman stories, and I have the actual issue, but as we're talking about it right now, I'm looking at the CBR just for convenience, and I guess it's just blown up um, on, you know, my, my large computer screen here. I never noticed that in that first panel, the bodies that Mongol is walking amongst, they're all hawks. Yes. So it actually looks like Hawkman and Hawkwoman and then like another unidentified hawk in the background. Well, we all know how I feel about Hawkman. So I kind of like this panel. <laughs> Do you like the fact that Adam Strange is giving up? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. And one of the Owens, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat. I like being able to identify some of the uh, some of the races and stuff in the background. That looks like one of the what are they called the controllers or whatever, right underneath Brainiac's leg, right there. One of one of Gems people, whatever those guys are <laughs> called. But the holograms. Uh, yes, <laughs> holograms. They are truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. But you know, since since you brought it up and brought the name up, I, I was I was debating whether I was going to say anything about <laughs> this or not. But since you brought up uh, uh, Grant Morrison, I, I just wanted to throw something out there that you know, I think there's a tendency maybe sometimes to forget that Alan Moore, he's kind of a freak. You know, I mean, 
He's written some a little bit, far yeah. out wacky shit. You know, I, I'm sure that there has definitely been some drug use involved in some of the crazy, crazy ass shit that he's written over the years. I mean, just looking at, at the man and the lifestyle that he leads and the things that he's into, while I greatly respect him, there is no denying that this guy, he's a little off. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that if, when it comes to when it's time to write Superman, you rein that shit in, mm-hmm. you know, and you're able to... Uh, Pay you know, serve your topic rather exactly. than serve yourself. Exactly. And able to handle that character with the respects and, you know, just the, uh, you know, like you say, serve reverence. the topic. The reverence that it deserves. And I think that uh, Grant Morrison could definitely take uh, a few pointers from the way Alan Moore handles Superman. And that's all I got to say on that. Well, Alan Moore definitely does his his history homework on a character, mm-hmm. and and he he references their history without being it like you know without it being like a cheesy callback or anything. He really puts it in context and will put a an angle on it that makes it neat, you know. Right. So he can call or he can you can tell sometimes he's thinking maybe I want to call back something that was kind of cheesy, and see how I can make it so it's not cheesy. Well, the difference and between really the two of them that. is that Alan Moore, at least to, to the to to the evidence of my eyes, you know, Alan Moore is a guy that if he wants to write weird, trippy, freaky, unusual shit, he finds the venue where he can do that. Be it, you know, Swamp Thing or you know whatever, he right. doesn't do that when he's writing Superman. You know, when he's writing Superman, he's writing Superman, and he's writing damn good Superman that is faithful to that character. Grant Morrison just goes, well, I'm Grant fucking Morrison, takes a handful of pills, and then just writes whatever trippy shit he wants to, no matter what character it is or what you know topic it is that he's, he's working on. That's the difference between the two of them, and that's why I just can't stand Grant Morrison meddling he, with Superman. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll take it one step further. Alan Moore throws a lot of information at you within the context of the story about the cool shit that's on Krypton. Mm-hmm. You know, he either he outright references them or he just shows it in the artwork, like the glass forest. Yep. And all that. And I never get to feeling that it's intrusive. When Grant Morrison does it, it almost feels like a pretentious guy name dropping. Yep. Right. Like Alan Moore obviously did his homework. But it doesn't show that he did his homework. It just flows into the story. Exactly. Grant Morrison always feels like, look, I'm so much smarter than you. Look at all the shit I've read. I am awesome. So, and, and I, I will it, completely agree with you. Because as, as somebody who just recently reread and you know did episodes about the return to Krypton, it's very evident now, rereading this story, that Grant Morrison is a fan of that story, was aware of that story, and was greatly referencing that story as he wrote this, none of which you catch if you're not looking for it when you read the story. That's the sign of a great writer, that he's using those elements, incorporating them into this story, but you never feel like, you know, this is a call out to something else. It just flows very organically. That's beautiful. 
And yeah, you're right. I I don't get that sort of thing from from Grant Morrison at all. Yeah. So do we want to talk about the cartoon really quick? Sure. Um, I really liked it. (laughs) Did you really? Yeah, I did. I thought it's definitely a different beast altogether. I mean, Mm -hmm. they obviously they had to. They had to work um, Robin out of there because I'm assuming he doesn't really figure into to the cartoon. And that, they didn't have the rights, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, and um, but <clears throat> they obviously like took the darker elements of Krypton right out of the story and made it more of a you know he was a farmer and more peaceful. But I thought that worked in the course of like. You know, they're thinking, ah, this is, you know, this, there's going to be some kiddies watching this. And for a kitty, for, I, I don't know, I haven't seen any of the rest of the show, but it was, it was still pretty violent. It still maintained some of the, um, the edge of, of this story and, and the basic idea of it. Um, there was some, uh, the, the one thing that really I just didn't like about it was the way his son looked. Um, his son looked, um, I call it um, coloring book syndrome. He just looked like a little kid in a generic coloring book or something, or from a generic cartoon. I didn't, I didn't, wow. I didn't like him. I, be- I, I liked him better in the, in the comic as, as a sort of toe-headed kid. I mean, he looked like he would be sort of Superman's kid in the cartoon, but I just didn't like the art style of it. It looked too just sort of like cartoony, generic kid. And uh, it was weird that they had a poop joke in there, too. And I liked, uh, I liked Brainiac the computer that looked like sort of the fantastic... Wasn't there a fantastic Herbie. four Herbie robot? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I thought that was kind of cool. I, I thought it was... Um, it was funny because I, I, I obviously I watched that this afternoon and then I just sort of I read through this again in the first time and I probably haven't read this in a couple of years, um, but um, yeah, there were several. I mean, there were the the animation style. I like that animation style. There were a couple moments that I thought were outstanding when uh, during the fight at the end of it, where they would spin the camera around and you got. And would sort of follow him, and you got a real good feel of, you know, two immensely powerful people fighting. Um, I don't think it, 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 you know, I think, um, yeah, I think that's about as good as they're going to do for a cartoon like that that was sort of, a, was it like from the Cartoon Network that they showed it on? Yeah. So it was on a, a you know, a weekly show, so you can't get too... You can't get too much Alan Moore on on a show like that, you know, that you want kids to watch. So I thought I thought they did a good job of um, of all the of you know the the changes they had to do to in order to fit it into the context of of what they were doing. There's some weird things like you know having um, Wonder Woman have the you know stuff that's just sort of random like oh, okay now Wonder Woman has the Krypton flower instead of Batman for some reason that led to a good gag though at least yeah um 
I liked it. I, I, I was I was thoroughly entertained. I'm taking by Scott's tone that um not a big fan of it. Um uh, well Mike went last last time, so I'll, I'll go last this time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um We'll let Scott bottle up some steam for Okay. Sorry I got distracted. My wife was flashing me again. Um oh. turn your camera on. I'm not turning my camera on. There's been a lot of, you know, you talking about your wife. Does your wife is your wife a, a flasher or something? Because you were talking about stealing a, a spinner rack using that that um, well, yeah, distraction I, method. That was just a joke that, that if I ever saw an old school spinner rack, that I would have Rachel flash the guy behind the counter. Well, yeah, it's, real yeah, quick it's just, so I could run out with it. Just kneecap the guy behind the counter. <laughs> she, she's pondering, guys, guys. She's pondering it. She's not saying no. <laughs> Okay, it depends on how bad I wanted it. So <laughs> um, that's what she said, literally. Boom! <laughs> yes. Um, there was uh, there was a lot about this adaptation that I liked. Uh, I liked Dana Delaney playing Lila. Uh, I liked. I, I kind of liked her being a reporter and him being a farmer, because it's a different take on what a fantasy world of Superman would be like. Uh, the thing with the kid was good only because they had that scene where, you know, crypto pooped on the floor and yeah, it was a poop joke, but at the same time it showed him being a parent and having to do the dad thing, uh, probably a lot less with a lot less volume than Scott would handle the same situation with his voice. Didn't you get the feeling that yes, he was being a parent, but if you listen to the dialogue there, he was basically exposing everything Superman stands for, yeah. but as he scalded his child, I thought that was a very clever piece of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that Christopher McDonald came back to be Jarrell. Yep, from the the first episode. Uh, really, I like it when they have a consistency there. George Newbern did a pretty good job. The only real problem I had with this entire uh, adaptation is the line "burn." Did not come off well at all. It didn't come off as angry as it, it, it just fury as it should, you know? Uh, I didn't get the sense that this Superman was as pissed as, as the Superman in the comic. Yeah. And that's kind of sad because the Superman of that universe, of the animated universe, has gotten freaking furious before. So uh, Eric Roberts did a great job voicing Mongol again. Uh, I like Eric Roberts as an actor, and I think he, he brought the... The, the the thing where uh, he goes, you know, obviously the female is the smarter of suspe- the species. And he's like, what's up with the plant? <laughs> like he's explaining it to a dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's, it was just, it was just great. And I just, I, I liked his performance. It was uh, for, for, you know, for a 22, 25 minute animated uh, take on a, you know, annual sized comic story. It was, it was decent. I like it. I like it as part of, excuse me, as part of this, as I belch right in the microphone. Nice. Um, I like it as part of this universe. I do like the fact that Batman's giving him cash. That's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but that makes me laugh. And dude, if I was trying to think of what Superman would actually do with cash, you know, he just probably pays rent for like a year and he'd probably buy a house with whatever. Because if Bruce Wayne gives you a 20, that's when you kick Bruce Wayne square in the nuts, you know? 
Right. It's like, dude, right. at least give me a C note. I mean, come on. Really? Seriously? WTF. Um, Wonder Woman's end of it was uh, was handled well, I think. I like Susan Eisenberg and her performance of Wonder Woman. I love the scene where Batman's screaming at Superman, listen to it, he's killing her. I was just like, wow, you're really pulling all the stops. And dude, when he gets the Black Mercy and uh, Thomas Wayne takes the gun away, doesn't that sound of Thomas Wayne beating Joe Chill go on just a little too much? Yeah, damn, he beats him good. <laughs> but I mean, that's how Batman, that's, that's Batman, you know, that's what Batman mixed with be all of a sudden or Bruce Wayne being a little child again and then you know the opportunity going the right way yeah he would want to see him beat him like Batman would just right. that, you see the kid like smiles is just like yeah, yeah! <laughs> pound him dead even even um even mom is uh looking like she's enjoying that beaten pretty good that that came out wrong but you know en- enjoying seeing the guy <laughs> get that beating he like that um, sorry, I couldn't help myself. No, I mean, like Chris said, there, there's a lot that you couldn't get into the time that they had. I would really kind of like to see this as like a longer short uh, for the DC animated universe mm-hmm. of the films and stuff right now, where they take just a little bit extra time. I don't know if I could handle a full 80 minutes, but it might be able to. I mean, it's a compelling enough story to do so. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that they do whatever happened to the man of tomorrow at some point. I'd rather see see them do this one than that one, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, what do you got, Scott? Um, I'm going to go kind of back and forth in my notes here a little bit. Um, I'm going to start with with some of my my gripes with this one. Because I have to be honest, uh, I was really... um, when I I remember when they... uh, you know, when the show was coming out, because this was the second episode of Justice League Unlimited. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I remember when uh, when it was let out, you know, the cat was out of the bag that this story was being a- adapted and this was going to be the second episode. I remember being both really excited and really nervous about it at the same time. And in the long run, I was vastly disappointed in it uh, for a number of reasons. First off, you can't really do this story without Robin. He's an essential part of this story. He takes down Mongol. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, Superman and Wonder Woman beat the crap out of Mongol, but it's Robin that saves the day. I think that's a very important part of this story. And... They excised it. I understand why they did. They couldn't use Robin legally at that time because he was licensed to a different franchise. That being said, I wish they just left it alone then and not tried to tackle it because I think his absence from that story is glaring in that episode. Um, I can't stand the soundtrack in the real world sequences of this. It's that guitar shit and I just don't like it. And it's really glaring to me because the soundtrack in the fantasy world is beautiful, especially the part between Kal-El and Van, you know, as basically the world ends. That's a great piece of scoring in that episode. So you've got, 
you know, both the dichotomy of the real world, you know, the fight and the fantasy world happening in the story. But then you've got this horrible soundtrack and this really great soundtrack in the same episode. And yeah, the, the one just really stands out to me badly. Um, what else have I got here? Um, my last real negative for the moment. Well, also I, I think the episode lacks punch. You know, you guys, uh, noted the part, um, where Superman says burn and how it just seems to, to really lack the anger and emotion of that moment. Well, you know, as I said before, that moment where Superman snaps out of it and says, who did this to me? And the moment where he screams Mongol and then takes off like a rocket into the next room. Those are both missing from the story that that's the best part of the whole story. I mean, it's, at least it's my favorite part of the story anyway. You know, that moment, that that scary Superman moment, and it's just not there. I mean, there's a lot of emotion in the episode, but I think it lacks the the emotion of the original story. That that just feeling like Superman has just really been toyed with and, and his emotions have been, you know, wound up to this point where he's gonna potentially beat Mongol to death. I never really felt that in the episode. That's and that's not, you know, a, a knock at Newburn. I think he did a, a great job, you know, voicing Superman. It's just something was lacking overall in the episode to to really make me feel that 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 sense that I got from the original story, that that weight of the moment. You think they like did that, that maybe on purpose? It could be. I, I've often wondered if maybe they toned it back because you know, ostensibly this is a kiddie show, so you know maybe they didn't want Superman to come off as frightening, you know, for the kids or whatever. But at the same rate, that begs the question: then why do it at all? You know, if you're going to take a story like this, you know, and, and adapt it, you, you damn well better do it right, or it's it's going to come off watered down. And, I, and that ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what it feels to me. It feels watered down. I mean, not only did they have to trim it down to be 22 minutes, but then, you know, they had to kind of water it down for the key. You know, like the moment where Wonder Woman grabs the big ass gun in the story, you know, Mongol says something smart and she tells him go to hell. And then she blasts the hell out of him with the gun. And this, there's just a very awkward moment where she grabs the gun and it's the same scene, but she doesn't even get to say go to hell. She just says like go to and then it. You, Boom, you hear the, the gun zap, goes off. It doesn't yeah. work. It feels like something got edited there. It feels like a bad cut. Um, I, I totally agree with Mike. I, I had a note on the same thing. This just needs to be full out adapted into a full fledged adaptation. I don't know that it would be enough to support an entire movie, you know, like a feature length animated movie, but it could definitely be adapted into one of those. Uh, you know, the DC showcase movies that they're doing right now. I, I think it would totally work for that. And you wouldn't have to pull those punches that got pulled in this adaptation. Sadly, I, I fear that it probably wouldn't ever happen just because, well, it's been done. It's now. already been done. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that's a shame. Um, but I don't want to be completely just negative. There are some things I really like in this. Um, and it's not so much this episode, although it happens in this episode, but I just l generally liked the interplay between Batman and Wonder Woman in the Justice League series anyway, because they had sort of a, they had kind of a Riker-Troy relationship where it was kind of on again, off again. There was a lot of sexual tension. There was a lot of flirting. And we see that in the beginning of this episode when they're in the, um, 
the wonder jet or whatever the hell she calls her, you know, her invisible jet, you know, there was, there was that little flirty relationship that they had. And I, and I like that, that, um, you know, wasn't in the original story because, you know, of course you had Robin there. So they kind of replaced Robin in this adaptation with having them be a little more flirty and all. I, I liked that. Right. Um, but that was more the series than it was strictly this adaptation. She's kind of like one of the guys flirty. Right. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, don't you think that turn was a little too tight? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I scare you? You know? <laughs> well, you know, like Mike, I like that they got the original voices back. Um, you know, save for Superman. You know, it wasn't um, Tim Daly, unfortunately. But, you know, they got the original guy that was Jor-El in the pilot. Plus, there's a line that Jor-El delivers where the voice that comes out of him is Pa Kent. And that's... Uh, I can't think of the guy's name, but it's uh, the guy that played. Uh, he was on Mash. On Mash, he was Honeycutt, yeah. right? On Mash. Oh, Mike Sparrow. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And I always like that moment because Cal Al catches it. He 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 doesn't really understand what's just happened. You can see it in his face, but he he clearly realizes that that was a different voice coming out of his father. And I like that moment because it kind of throws him, and it's it's one of those those cues in the episode that something's not right with Superman's world. And I like that a lot. I actually like the sequence between Cal and van, you know, the, the whole, I don't think you're real sequence a lot better in this than I do in the original story, because in the original story, everything just goes all kind of phantom zone and van kind of fades away in this one, Superman holds his son as the world destroys itself around them. That was powerful. I mean, it was uh-huh. very, very powerful. And I really like that because, you know, I have to disagree with Chris. I like Van a lot better in this because, for one, he looked like his father, which is, I know that's kind of an odd thing to, bo- you know, to, to point out, but it always kind of bothered me in the original story that he doesn't look like his father. He just, he just looked like some kid. You know, he doesn't really even look like Lila, I think. He just looks like, you know, some some kid. Whereas in this, he looked like little Kal-El. You know, he, he looked like a, a smaller version of his father. And so that made that that interplay between them and that moment between them at the end just that much more. You know, it really packs a punch. As much as I, I feel like this episode's kind of a letdown as an adaptation that moment gets me every time, you know, the, the moment between them, father and son like that. Um, let's see. I already said that I like the soundtrack in the fantasy world. Lastly, unfortunately, I kind of have to leave on a, on a negative um, as my last notes on this. At the end of the day, there, there's a moment in this that kind of th- this kind of sums up why I, I am not a big fan of this episode when Superman's talking to Van right before the world ends, he, he tells his son that this is everything I ever wanted in a life. That this story does not work in this continuity in, in this version of, of Superman, you know, the Superman, the animated series, it was very, very, very close to Burns version of Superman where he was raised by the Kents, the Kents lived, you know, beyond his teen years. And, you know, they're still around in his life 
as an adult. And so he didn't grow up as the Clark and an event, you know, the Superboy eventually into Superman that was constantly mooning about Krypton and constantly whining and learning things about Krypton and all this shit was falling out of the sky that was from Krypton and everything was about Krypton, <laughs> Krypton, Krypton. That's not this Superman. So this story put into the context of everything we've seen with this Superman so far from Superman, the animated series right up to this episode, it doesn't jibe. This isn't a Superman that ever really wanted to go back and and live on Krypton and had fantasies about Krypton or really thought of Jor-El and Lara as his parents. His parent, this Superman's parents are clearly Martha and Jonathan Kent. So I think this Superman's fantasy world would be completely different than the pre-crisis Silver Age Superman. This is a great story for that Superman. It's a quintessential story of the Silver Age Superman. But the Superman in, in Justice League was a much more modern for the times Superman. You know, the, the, the FCTC era Superman. And I just don't think that the two of them are, are compatible. I, I think that's one of the story, one of the reasons why we never really saw an updating of this story, you know, for the uh, the the post crisis Superman because I, I just don't think it works. It, it's it's not the same guy. You know, Burns Superman at the end of Man of Steel, you know, has that that speech. You know, it's basically a speech saying, you know, well, it's it's all well and nice that you know. Jor-El sent all these memories to me of Krypton, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because I'm an Earth guy. And that was kind of the way that that ended, that series ended, kind of setting the template for, you know, the 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 man that would follow, you know, the 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 thinking of that Superman, you know, that that he identified himself as as a, an American and a, as an a, as an Earthling. And I think that's, you know, the the big difference between these two and why you know at least for me personally this story just doesn't work with with that version of superman i I don't know what do you guys think about that i think the fact that he's a farmer makes more sense for this superman than doing whatever he was doing in the in the silver age one him being a farmer his his wife being a reporter that feels more like the burn superman that's true that's very Uh, true so, I I see what you're saying. I just slightly disagree with it in this specific instance. I don't know enough about the different Supermans, to, but from what you were saying, Scott, yeah, I could see what what you mean. Like, maybe the animated <clears throat> would have been more of a story where he grew up in Smallville as a normal kid and right. took over the, the the farm at, and maybe that's why it was a farm in this one, you know, but you know, if they're, they could have changed it to that, you know, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is they, 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 to have the same emotional feel of this, they could have had it be say a Smallville fantasy there that, Absolutely. you know, where he had to give up his son and it, right. I don't think it would be any emotional, less emotionally resonant, you know? Right. So, because that's my hang-up. That is, you know, that that is exactly my hang-up with this. Is you know, especially that scene, you know, from from the original issue where Mongols mopping the floor with him. Superman starts to regain an edge, but then he gets distracted by, 
you know, the, the statues of Jor-El and Lara holding up Krypton. I mean, for one thing, I'm pretty sure that that's never been seen before. And I don't think it's ever seen again in the animated, you know, in the Timverse. Is it? Because I, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think it is. I'd have to go back and watch the series. I think it was. Was it really? Yeah. Well, you you might be right. It just to me it just jumped out as wait a minute this just this this isn't that Superman. This isn't the Superman that's you know constantly pining for all things Kryptonian. You know he he was more likely to go spend time with Mon Pa Kent than he was to go hang around at his fortress and and you know dig through Kryptonian archives or something like that. At least that was that was always my impression of the character anyway. But I don't think it's I don't think it's bad or anything. I just I think it it lacks bite because of the medium that it had to operate in. I think it could be longer. I I, I really wish, man, I really wish that they had been able to uh, finagle Robin in there somehow. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I got on it. Love to see it as a as an actual uh, movie though. An animated movie, yeah, mo- animated or hell, I'd, I'd <laughs> I think a live action would be would be phenomenal. But of course, that would have to be years from now when you know when DC would uh, you know would would have after a, Christian Bale is dead <laughs> in order for it to be acceptable. Well, well you know, I mean, it's well, just, did did you see that, Scott? What what's you, that? What, the announcement yesterday? No, what's that? Christian yeah. Bale's dead. No. Oh. He uh, he made the announcement. He took off the bat cow for the last time. He's never playing the character again. Oh, he's made me so happy. Well, no, I was just going to say though that th- this would have to be you know when when DC you know had actually uh, you know created an actual shared universe you know on the screen because you would you you know in order to make that movie you would definitely have to have. Yeah, you know, Wonder Woman, you know, Batman, hopefully Robin in there as well. You know, you, you, I don't think this this could be, you know, the next Superman movie, for example. You know, because you need those characters no. in there to make that story work. I damn it, I do want to see a real movie version of the the old school Fortress of Solitude, not the crystal version, but this one with walls, you know, yeah. cement walls and zoos and trophy rooms. I love that. I, you know, I, I take a lot of shit for knocking uh, Grant Morrison, but you know, one thing I did feel like he got right in that uh, All Star Superman thing was the fortress that he had in that was pretty close to this one. I didn't like the whole silly, what was it like, piece of a star was the yeah. So that was kind of stupid. But the rest of it was pretty. I mean, you know, the part where he took Lois out for dinner and it was actually on the ship that's suspended inside the fortress. I thought that was kind of a neat idea, you know, stuff like that. So I don't know. That's, but that's pretty much all I got on this. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. You guys got me to read another superhero comic. I hope you're proud of yourselves. (laughs) I am. I'm smug about it. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on Back to the Bins. Not a problem. 
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. All right, let me um, let me get recording just so there's a backup going. That sounds good. As wonky as my computer's been lately, that sounds very One, good. One, two, three. And I am three. recording too. Sweet. Excellent. I so there's okay. no possible way we can fuck up. Oh, we could find and, a way. And that's when the EMP pulse hits. Right. <laughs> I just put the um, shooting the shit episode I, up. Oh, did you? I saw the picture. I was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> Ooh, cool! Crockett Keller accepted my uh, accepted my uh, friend wasn't request. He, wasn't he Don Johnson's character on Miami Vice? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I mm-hmm. I'm so pissed I can't find this comic because I know I've had it in my hand like recently. Uh, I mean, ah, it's pissing me off. I'm trying to remember what the big stink was with this guy now. There was a big stink with him not long ago where I was like, I love this guy. I can't remember what the hell that was all about. Now let me see if I can Google it real quick. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's he's the one that had the radio ad for... uh, for gun lessons, but if you had voted for Obama, or if you were, uh, uh, or I forget how he said it, if you were like, oh, he had a few, yeah, he had a yeah. few different, uh, oh, Muslim, if you were a Muslim, yeah, that was it. Crockett Keller bans Muslims and Obama supporters from gun battle. I love that shit. <laughs> I love this guy. I fucking love this guy. I fucking love this guy. I fucking love my wife's pumpkin pie. Mm -hmm. I have not had any pumpkin pie yet. I probably may not get pumpkin pie till like around Christmas time. I'm thinking. I have a piece of pumpkin pie that I'm uh, eating and a glass of eggnog. I have a piece of pumpkin pie and a glass of eggnog. I like my wife's pumpkin pie. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> no, it was not something else. I like your wife's cherry pie. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, it's Boo. <laughs> what? Not that one. Or was that Scott? That was me.
Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I thought that was your dog. God damn it, dude. What did you eat before? <laughs> I was... I'm telling you, man. I was the shooting the shit episode. Your dog makes little grunts at the most opera. Whenever we talk about any kind of bodily function, the dog's like, and it's just, it was cracking me up all through the whole show. No, but seriously, when we were, the night before Thanksgiving, we were there till like two o'clock in the goddamn morning getting the ad ready. And we're having, it's me, the assistant manager, the assistant manager trainee, and the store manager. And we're having like our little post game meeting prepping for Thursday. And right in the middle of it, my manager perks up an ass cheek and lets this loud oh. one rip. And I saw the trainee assistant manager that was sitting next to him jump off of the counter and like run away. And it was just like, did you just That's some kind of that? harassment. Yeah, that's like harassment, man. <laughs> Somebody should go to prison for that. That's his assment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That ain't right, man. That's host- That's a hostile working <laughs> environment. In the middle of meetings, he'll just be like, now, you know, our printer sales are... <clears throat> Damn it, Jason, not in the fucking office. <laughs> Bad enough you have Copenhagen in your mouth. Oh, Jesus Christ. I forget about that. There's not as many like sculptures around here as I live in the heart of Skull Country. Yeah. So, <laughs> Scott will tell you in Georgia, Skull is an Olympic level sport. <laughs> and after working <laughs> through as many convenience stores, those fuckers are really particular about the date. What's the date on the Skull? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's from a week from now. You got anything newer? No. I'll be back. I want my lip and tongue cancer fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. That sounded like somebody dropped a five-pound turkey on the floor. (laughs) By the way, finally listened to the Monster Squad episode. Good job. Love the editing. Oh, thank you. I was going to say you were there for that. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's always great to listen to it afterwards because dude oh yes that's where we had the yes that's that's where i made the sounds of what it sounds like when michael bailey masturbates <laughs> <laughs> or when i get up yeah. in the morning <laughs> same difference <laughs> The best part of waking up. The semen in your cup. Oh. <laughs> Dude, Scott, you will not believe the shit I got at this four for a dollar sale. Oh, is that today? No, that was, uh, I went Friday and Saturday. Spent like 50 bucks, got about 190 bucks. I found Wolfman Perez-era Teen Titans in there that I bought new copies of because mine were kind of shitty. But it's just like, wow, these things should be worth money. And now I'm for buying them. For quarter? Yes, for 20 Wow. Um, took a huge chunk out of my Mike Grell Green Arrow run that I needed. I went from needing about 50 issues to now I need, I think, about 15 to have that whole series. So... 
Good shit. Really awesome stuff. What was the other series I bought the crap out of? Oh, Catwoman by Ed Brubaker. Uh, got a bunch, like got like half of that run for a quarter apiece. So it was a lot of fun. You would have enjoyed it. I really could have used a wingman <laughs> because every comic in the building was four for a dollar, except for like the case books. Damn. So all the back issues that are normally like like the you know the whatever the price says on the little price sticker, they were four for a dollar too. Holy fuck. How so. did he have anything left when he was done? Oh, he had stuff because he's got a because he keeps buying collections, dude. He'll he'll buy collections at like a nickel or a dime a piece, and then resell them for fifty cents. <coughs> yeah, so then he doesn't if, care what it's worth. Yeah, so he'll he'll take out like the stuff that's worth something. But even sometimes then, even if it's worth quote unquote worth something, he'll throw it in the three dollar bin, which is how I got like a bunch of the JLA JSA crossovers. From the seventies, see, he's smart. That's just plain smart because mm-hmm. that'll keep you coming back and checking mm-hmm. those bins all the time. Because you never know what's going to turn up in that shit at any given time. Whenever he buys another sucker's collection, and he's not the most personable of guys, but man, yeah. if you if he's known you for a while, you'll walk in. It's like, dude, bunch of Superman comics. I just got in. Go look at him. We'll work out something. Because he's making money no matter what. That's the thing. He's just... Ah, it's so awesome. Not as cool as Titans, but a worthy successor. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of like that idea, you know, if you guys thought it was a good idea. Yeah. And then that gives us something to, to plug into that, that um, third week spot. And that should be a fairly easy, you know, easy show to do. Plus, you know, then we don't have to keep trying to, to find somewhere to, to fit it into yeah, to, Comics Monthly yeah, Monday. Finagle it in there because we just yeah. keep forgetting to do it more than anything. Well, I like it the way I like it the way it is, sort of, you know. I like yeah. it where we don't have to worry about finagling something in yeah. if we don't want to. So it, it it's really it's kind of stream of consciousness a lot of the time and the conversation tends to be I think it's more entertaining that way. When it's when like it's just, that, yeah. It's it's like the thing we recorded last week. That was fun as shit because we were just sitting there kind of just bullshitting. Right. And trying to make each other laugh. And I, think, I really didn't have to cut as much of that uh, out of that as uh, I thought I was going to have to, too. I well, thought, oh, there was well, a lot. Well, Scott's drunken anti-Semitic tirade. I'm glad you cut that out. My, I am so curious. There is a great part where Scott goes, you know, speaking of racism, and you and I are both just like, oh, oh Jesus. No. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm how do I smell a fart when Scott's in fucking Florida? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very curious what got cut out of that uh, that Tales episode that I listened to today, because some, something got cut there. You went on, it was when you were talking about how Americans have kind of gotten asleep at the wheel and how you know we don't see them as an enemy anymore you know we you know we weren't nice to the japanese until the job was done we shouldn't you know make nice and all that and as soon as you ended it you said 
you know, I said I wasn't going to get political. I got political. You should just cut all that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's the only reason I did is because you said to. Oh, I mean, I wasn't mad or anything. I was just, but afterwards I was like, clearly something got said there. I can say we did audio. not uh, in the episode. And I'm like, I wonder what the hell I said. I can cut out the audio and send it to you. No, but the thing right. is, I was just curious because I, I couldn't remember. I mean, you know, I, I'm like you said the other day, you know, you were, you were saying, 90% of stuff that I cut out is stuff I cut out because Scott said, yeah, let's cut that. 